for joining me for the Plant Yourself Podcast. I'm your host, Howie Jacobson. Today, for the first time in the history of the Plant Yourself Podcast, I am republishing an old episode. And it's one that I recorded in 2018. So it's almost five years old. And it's with Simon Marshall and Leslie Patterson. And we talked about their book, Becoming a Brave Athlete. And I was rereading the show notes for that episode. It turns out there's a lot of salty language. So this is definitely not safe for work. But the reason I'm bringing it up now is basically to um, name drop and coattail because Leslie Patterson turns out uh, just won a BAFTA, which is a word with five letters in it that's something the B stands for British and it's something about film and theater and she wrote a screenplay. And when, she, when, when Leslie retired from triathleting and, and athleting, she's like, I'm going to become a screenwriter. And people are like, yes, dear, that's nice. And well, Damn, but she did it. So that was just in the news last week. Um, I emailed her to congratulate her and she emailed back. So she still remembers the people who helped her along the way. And I think you're going to really enjoy this um, conversation about how each of us can think of ourselves as an athlete. And I would like you to listen to it the way I'm re-listening to it with Leslie's new accomplishments. Like it's not just about running or lifting weights or playing a team sport. It's about how do you bring out the best in yourself in every endeavor, in every situation. So without further ado, Simon Marshall and Leslie Patterson, welcome to the Plant Yourself podcast. Thanks, Howard. Great to be here. Yeah, thanks, Howard. Yeah, so let's get this out of the way at the very beginning. This is going to be an explicit episode with a little E next to iTunes. So anyone who's listening um, who, who wants to bail now or plug the ears of small children, because your book is called The Brave Athlete, Calm the Fuck Down and Rise to the Occasion. Well, okay. although to be fair, we have redacted the U, so it could be feck or fuck. I'm, I'm embarrassed that, that my mind went there now. <laughs> Oh, I know. Yeah. Well, it's funny because our publisher, we, you know, we had uh, we, I won't say we had a fight with our publisher, but we, we did. They were they weren't so keen initially on on having a, a you know, a curse word on the title of a, of a book that they're trying to sell. And I think we convinced them um, that, that it wasn't just gratuitous for gratuitous sake. But there's a reason that we use explicit language because sport often brings that out in us. <laughs> right. I think I saw a, a study recently that said that uh, the people who curse tend to, to perform better. And, and, you know, it, it's funny because it, and there's been some quite quite a lot of research, actually, on use of taboo language generally. And, yes, your pain tolerance increases if you if you swear almighty, you know, during the during something that hurts. But also it's a myth, you know, that people who swear have a smaller vocabulary. So that's another myth. So it isn't just a sign of that you don't have other words that you can use instead. So we, we stick by our swearing. God damn it. Yeah. I mean, it's like, you know, why would you give up condiments just because um, fruits and vegetables exist? <laughs> oh, I like that. Can we can we steal that one? It's all yours. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, so this this book is so interesting and funny and helpful and like so. Let's let's start with the very with the very first question that I had, which is: so who is an athlete, and and who is not an athlete? And see, we have this, this, this works itself out in our marriage as well. It's well, you know, to, to, 
uh, one one of the, the the big issues that we find with uh, people who are training and they look like athletes, they sound like athletes, uh, but they don't call themselves athletes, or they just say, "Oh, I'm just a this that that." It's to do with identity. So your athletic identity is the sort of the beliefs and opinions you have about your own athleticism, whether you can even feel comfortable calling yourself an athlete or other people refer to you as an athlete. So it's partly to do with what you, you do, like you train and compete and so on, but it's also about how you see yourself. So it's not as simple as saying you're either an athlete or not. I mean, many athlete, many folks who we know who train and compete a lot, they still don't consider themselves athletes. And likewise, we know lots of people who sit on the couch and don't do any training and they consider themselves athletes. So it's a combination of behavior and mindset. And I mean, my, my assumption is that there's no there's no one on the planet who is precluded from calling themselves an athlete. Right. That, like we, we have we have these fixed identities and you talk a lot about you know, your identity and self-concept and self-esteem and schemas yep. in, in the book. But like if we're human, then to some extent we are we are athletes. Right. Because we come from a long line of of critters who had to like run and jump and do all sorts of physical things in order to survive. Well, I think I think it comes down to, um, you know, if you're out there and you're exercising, I'd say that if someone is completely sedentary uh, and they're and they're, you know, sitting down the whole day, they're not partaking in any exercise of any form. I wouldn't call them an athlete, <laughs> um, you know, uh, but if they're doing any kind of exercise, whether it's fast walking, even uh, whether it's, uh, you know, out at the gym twice a week, you know, uh, you know, I would say that that's that, 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 that that's an athlete. You know, anyone that's that's participating in, in physical activity, um, you know, uh, uh, so that that would be my perception of it. But but for too, too often people uh, think that they have to be completing an Ironman in order to call themselves an athlete uh, or they're completing a marathon. Uh, or they're not an athlete, whereas we coach and are around many people that are, are, you know, training and competing in a 5K or a one-mile run or something like that, and I would still call them an athlete. Yeah, and I think, again, there's no, there's no, you know, one answer to this. I would layer on to the, you know, what you do uh, to that is that usually there's a sense of sort of volitional competition, right? You enter yourselves into an environment where you're going to be compared to other people, your performances are. So, and that's usually, we're now in the realm of sports. Uh, so that usually is the kind of added that makes an, ex, turns an exerciser or a fitness enthusiast into an athlete. Usually they're, 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 they're now competing. And it doesn't mean that you, that you, you know, you end, you're sort of entering races to try and win. But I mean, when you are putting a number on or you're doing something where your performance is, is, can be compared to another people, that kind of is the threshold for me anyway, as, as of being an athlete. Mm-hmm. Gotcha. So, so when you're saying that, you know, that some people are athletes and some people are not, it's a choice, right? It's, it's not a, it's not a sentence. And it, yeah. And it's, and it's not, and it's, and it's a choice. It's not even just a sentence. It's actually about the fact that, um, you know, when, when folks uh, begin and they start training or they start devoting discretionary time to systematic uh, pr- preparing, uh, then, um, when you decide uh, that you are is part of your identity, in other words, that you now think of yourself as an athlete and other people think of you as an athlete because athletic identity has both an inward and an outward component to it, then you become an athlete. So unlike, you know, there are lots of people who are doing all the things that of the, the athletes do, but say they're not athletes. Well, guess what? They're an athlete. They just haven't yet been able to embrace that as part of their identity. 
Right. Because, you know, I, I work with a lot of people who they come to me because they want to lose weight and sometimes lose lots of weight. Like they're, you know, 350, 400 pounds. They have never seen themselves as athletes. And one of the turning points, like I can get them eating right for a while. Um, I can get them to, you know, put on some shoes and go for a walk. But at a certain point, the ones who, who it dawns on them, I'm an athlete, even though I don't look like what I think an athlete looks like. But like that's that's my um, that's my inheritance as as, a, as the owner of a human body. Like those are the people for whom it becomes a a success, a whole a whole new identity. It affects everything, not just the, the the training, but it affects their mindset. It affects their ability to make food choices. And there's there's something about when that identity switch of athlete flips on that I see all sorts of really magical and compoundingly powerful things happening. Exactly. And, you know, when, when these sorts of uh, thoughts and feelings you have about how you see yourself start to shift towards that new identity with an athlete or, or whatever, what have you, we know that your other choices uh, that you make also start to conform to that identity. So having an athletic identity, this is one of the reasons why so many behaviors that are good for our health are are correlated, right? So as you become fitter, you make better food choices. And there's research to show that. So it's, it's all part of a, a sense that how you think about your own health has started to shift. So I think that's really important that we try and get people to encourage or we try and get them to to change that sort of sense of self alongside those behaviors that they're making, because we know it's going to have some knock-on effects that are going to be really helpful for them as they tackle their new self. Right. I, I, I love that, that other choices conform to our identity. Because I see so many people for whom it's, they're basically plate spinning, right? They've, yeah. got a whole, they've got a whole list of things that they have to do now. And every day they have to get up and, and battle decision fatigue to do those things as opposed to, Oh, this is this is what I do because this is who I am. Exactly, that's a well, great way of putting it. You know, it. it's really funny because people often say to me, you know, I've I've been I've had a very strong athletic identity literally since I was out the womb, and <laughs> uh, and people, you know, will often say to me, "Gosh, you know, how do you do it? How do you get up every morning and do this?" And I said, you know, I, I try and simply say to them, "Listen, this is part of my my DNA. It's is easy." to me as br as brushing your teeth you know brushing my teeth might be to you sort of a thing um and and i try and put it in those terms because for me that's yeah it's it's it, it, it's easy it doesn't actually require that much motivation I'm, I'm incredibly lucky in that regard so uh for for sure once you have adopted that identity it's easier to to, to buy into what it takes to do it so you didn't just write a book about being an athlete you wrote about being a brave athlete so, and I know it, com it comes out of your experience personally and experience coaching many people through, through Braveheart. Why is that important? Why, do, why does a book need to be written showing athletes how to be brave? Yeah, well, um, so there's a couple things. One is that, that we, through our experience with coaching athletes, uh, who are humans first and athletes second, I guess, is that we've seen that, that many of them struggle with the same things. And, and one of the universal things that people struggle with is having thoughts and feelings that they don't want. And some of those can be about their sport, but about their jobs, about their relationships, about whatever. But we, we focus on the thoughts and feelings don't, that people don't want about their athletic life. 
And so when you when you start to unpack some of those thoughts and feelings, and they might be related to feeling anxious or not wanting to be judged or not wanting to be look embarrassed or humiliated or shown up in front of other people or they get really nervous. I mean, one of the things that the, all of these things have in common is that they that one that they don't want to feel like that. They want to enjoy this thing that is supposed to be for fun. So we try and get people to say, OK, what does it mean to actually you know, um, uh, uh, tackle things that scare us or are challenging or that we're worried about being judged or evaluated. And how do we do that with a little bit more um, enjoyment and confidence? And what it takes actually is not to, and we've, we now know this through some of the psychological research, is that what it takes is not to pretend those things don't exist or to try and fight them and beat them into submission so that you only step onto the field or the pitch or the track when you actually feel you know, very confident, free of any worry of, of negative uh, self with no negative self-talk. And we know that's not realistic. We're all, we all have human brains and we do things and we're scared all the time. We're scaredy cats, right? And there's a good evolutionary reason why that's very protective to feel like that. So being a brave athlete to us is, is first and foremost the implicit assumption that you're going to feel things that you don't want to feel. And that's okay. And you can jump and try it anyway. So it's learning to, to kind of step hand in hand with your, your fears, your worries, your insecurities, and then learn to know that they're probably not going to ever disappear completely, but you can still enjoy it with those feelings if you understand why you're having them. So that to us is really what being brave is all about. It's like embracing and accepting that you have dissenting voices in your head and be able to and live, coexist with them rather than fight against them. Mm -hmm. does, does it surprise people when, Leslie, you say that you have those thoughts and voices too because of your your persona, was it the uh, Patty McGinty, the, yeah. the one who's, who's, you know, stares down fear? Um, yeah, very much so, very much so. I think, you know, people look at someone like myself or other professionals and uh, they put us on a pedestal and they think that it's all easy and that, you know, everything just, uh, you know, is simple and you feel great all the time. You never have any negative thoughts. And it, it's it's absolutely not true. I have as many negative uh, uh, thoughts as your, your sort of average amateur athlete. And, and even more so, there's a lot of pressure there. There's a lot of expectation. Um, so it's almost heightened in a way. Um, so, yeah, I've been through many, many ups and downs uh, on this roller coaster journey, um, both through the successes and through the failures. So as soon as I express my, my greatest fears and doubts, I think that level of empathy is what draws people in and makes them realize that, hey, you know, if, if, if she can do it, I can do it kind of thing. So now now would probably be a good time um, to, to ask you to tell your story, or maybe it's the second best time after, yes. 10, minute, after 10 minutes ago. But, the, you know, the book yes. does, does start with enter Leslie sobbing and he can go. Uh, fuck himself. I assume it's the same uh, <laughs> replacement of the asterisk. So you can can you kind of put that in context and uh, and tell us your sure. your story? Yeah, you know, um, I was pretty competitive, uh, very very young, um, and was in the national team uh, for triathlon, the Great Britain team, the Scottish team, the whole bit, and had massive aspirations to go to the Olympics. Really, since the age of four, if I'm honest. <laughs> um, so you know, this was this massive massive dream and. Um, and being in that squad, it was it was very tough. Uh, it was very data driven. Everything was by numbers. The coaches didn't really know how to speak to me. Uh, there was really no great sort of uh, emotional touch points with with any of the coaches. And as a 
a sort of 15, 16 year old girl, that was that was tough. You know, um, I, I was constantly told that I wasn't good enough, that I would never make it. And my numbers showed that. And yet I had this great drive um, to want to and this huge, huge passion. And uh, it, it caused me to to retire from the sport at the, at the ripe old age of 20. And, uh, you know, essentially see myself as a big, big failure and move on to other things that could enrich my soul again and, and help me find passion again, because that's what I'd lost. So I went into uh, a drama and theatre and acting and acted in a bunch of student films and independent horror films and lots of crazy things. And, uh, and, and, and by way of that, just kind of found find myself, if you will, and, 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 and gained the confidence to know that this was going to be, if I was going to be successful as an athlete, it had to be my journey. And I'd been told that I had to act like other people and be like other people and train like other people to be a champion. Well, I wanted to do it my way. Um, and so, and that's how I, you know, found Xterra, found the love of it and, and gained success. Uh, I, I found my own path to get there. And that's what, what, what brought me three world titles, you know, um and so but you know not without its many many ups and downs but luckily you know having a sports psychologist as a husband I was able to kind of come home and crying and weeping and 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 you know filled with drama and have mm-hmm. someone to at least explain what was going on and why and and give me some ways to to help me get better and you've got to remember as well how that at the elite level many of the coaches are exercise physiologists or they're sports scientists trained and 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 it's no it's no fault of their own i mean i'm, I'm casting a, a you know a sweeping generalizations here but it's no fault of their own but but when you look at the training of coaches or in coach education there's so little regard given to bedside manner for what for want of a better word, you know, teaching the skills of empathy and delivering harsh feedback with compassion so that you know that it's coming from a, a place where they're supporting you and trying to move you forward versus the very data driven, which is, you know, Leslie would have races where she would just, she would get after the coaches, some of the coaches wouldn't even talk to her after races. Oh, if you hadn't had a good race and you, and the, the only debrief you'd get would, would be an Excel spreadsheet or something. And it's quite dehumanizing that because we've got to remember that athletic potential and, and reaching athletic potential is far from an exact science. Sure, there's a bunch of physiology and sports science in how we develop, tra- uh, you know, responsiveness to training stimulus. But a lot of it is also attitude and mindset and growing the soil or nurturing the soil with the, with that you grow world class talent in. And that and that is really Really, uh, 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 an often neglected piece of coach education, and that filters right now. It's not just elite squads; that filters through most sports at most levels, and it's a shame. Right, and, and there, you know, there's so, there's so much evidence that that that's the kind of the stuff that matters, right? That uh, that, that the spreadsheets and the algorithms. You know, maybe somebody has a, an insight that they keep to themselves for a couple of years, but but eventually that spreads. But the you know the teams or the players that end up doing really well or the individual performers are those who can get their heads on straight who can do the you know the the three things that you talk about in in the in the book with the uh, the images of the bandaged heart the wings and the sword yeah i mean and 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 you know some athletes find that sort of rel- somewhat organically like leslie did um i mean i helped obviously but but she 
there are lots of athletes like Leslie who get to the place where they're finally able to find their own identity and their own journey through it. Others, unfortunately, drop out of the sport because they just get so sick and tired of how they're either treated or they just don't, they might not even have the, the the ability to know that that's what it is. They just feel that they, they've fallen out of love with the sport or it's become too X, Y, Z for them. And then they just they, they stop it altogether. And then you've got the other athletes, sort of the, the Rudy syndrome, which is, you know, these athletes who are on paper anyway, they don't stack up against what talent ID programs tell us that you, is needed to be at the top level. But they've got an incredible heart. So and so it's a big debate. Like what which is more important? Um, and but certainly there's no debate over that we should be nurturing both if we want to get the best athletic uh, 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 to find the best athletic selves of our or reach our potential. And unfortunately, most of the evidence suggests at the moment is skewed heavily in favor of just looking at um you know, the quantifiable metrics of training stress and training stimulus and coaching uh, are drills, protocols and, and methods rather than how that you nurture mindset. And my, my guess is you, know, you, you start the book with a quote that I love, which is we should all do stuff that scares us, however small. And this takes a very personal form of courage. And my guess is that one of the reasons that coaches don't give the kind of empathetic, compassionate feedback is that it's scary to engage with another person on a human level as opposed to just handing them an Excel spreadsheet. Yeah, I mean, the, the head of, not just heads of athletes, the heads of people, I mean, they're a black box, right? And they're pretty scary things. And they, you f- often find stuff that's dark and you don't know how to cope with it. Um, but that doesn't mean, and even if you don't have the training to do that, it doesn't mean that, that conversation isn't worth having because just having, you know, the ability to empathize, which is something that it should be a human virtue that we should all be trying to, to develop and learn, uh, doesn't require any, uh, any detailed skill or psychological insight. It, it means that you try and walk, you put yourself in someone else's shoes and rather than just simply judge or instruct or lecture or teach understand that having those discussions learning just the basic skills of empathy are 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 a huge step forward and even if you don't go much beyond that you know using some mental skills or other psychological insights or strategies just having that built uh, the way that you build trust is a is a is a good way to shift mindset so learning empathy skills is a is a fantastic start right and there's something so beautiful about using athletics to to um, to turn yourself into the kind of human being that you aspire to be. Like you can do it through, you know, touchy-feely stuff or leadership development or personal development at, at work. But there's, there's something really nice about having both the, you know, the, the, the mental and emotional intelligence and the practice, but also having these really clear results. Yeah, you know, I think having um, structure and accountability and goals, uh, you know, are are, are wonderful things to set you straight in other areas of your life. Uh, But but moreover, I think what sport allows us to do is look deep into our soul and that of our training partners as well. Um, Because when you're going through pain, you're at your most vulnerable and that's when you get your, your biggest discoveries. And so it's a, a kind of artificial way of creating that, you know, that level of, uh, uh, you know, pulling back the curtain on who you really are. Yeah. And then and then not only that, you know, uh, developing these wonderful friendships with other people that are there with you when you're doing it. And it creates an everlasting bond. 
Mm. It's 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 funny because you know at the beginning of the book you talk a lot about our three pound lump of crazy. <clears throat> excuse me, the, you know our brain that has evolved for a very different world than we live in now, where there you know there's saber toothed tigers and woolly mammoths and and all sorts of dangers. And in a sense, that do, doing athletics is is kind of as close as it makes sense to put right. ourselves back into that world. Yep, and 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 if you look at all of the races now, you've got. You know, all of the ultra runs, uh, you know, that are incredibly challenging and, and all, of, you know, through all of this amazing terrain, you've got things like Spartan and obstacle racing and everything's about getting back to that visceral, visceral response to the world uh, because we've lost touch of it, you know, uh, with, uh, you know, media, social media, you know, computers and just the way that we connect with other people now, uh, it, it feels like it's the only way to really get get back mm-hmm. to the basics and and some some sports sociologists and philosophers have written about this as well i mean you know we we're in the world of triathlon and uh but we've you know and other endurance sports and there's no denying that there's a strong socioeconomic uh gradient to this right it's not it's it, they're expensive sports and uh and and one of the conclusions has been that part of this trend that we're seeing to to try and engine to find activities where that are harder and more challenging whether it's you know through Ironman or ultra running is that somehow we we've lost our sense of suffering and 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 this isn't to trivialize that the people many people who do these sports are suffering in other many other areas of their life as well but it's this notion that what what why are we drawn to try and create opportunities to test our boundaries or our limits? Why are we drawn to environments that are going to make us suffer? Well, clearly we learn something about ourselves through doing that. Perhaps, you know, we now have desk jobs or we're knowledge workers. We're not, we don't have, and so maybe it's a, uh, why is, why, what's the appeal of finding sports or activities that are continually pushing our limits? Uh, and, and what's the f- sort of, the, is there a, some existential reason we do that? And again, it's not to trivialize the fact that lots of people have lots of suffering in their lives already. But certainly when you look at the socioeconomic gradient of some of these endurance sports, it's usually what fairly, you know, white middle class um, uh, 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 men and women that are doing them. Then maybe, maybe there's something about that we need some sorts of suffering in our lives to learn something about ourselves. Right. And, and that's one of the challenges that I have when I'm coaching these these new people who, you know, it's sort of a bait and switch. Like I'm telling them, you know, one thing and then at a certain point they realize, oh, this is going to require effort and and the and what we call vitamin P, like, you know, pain, like actually, <laughs> you know, that, that we're 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 deficient in some way if we're not getting that. And. And people, you know, some, there's some people, I guess, like, you know, like Leslie and, and the, the ultra endurance community that, that, that understand that we can thrive on this. But most people, when they think about that, like, you know, the comments I get when I, you know, I say, oh, I just ran a marathon or I'm training for a 50K, you know, most of the others with a capital O, the civilians look at me like, you must be crazy. Yeah, you know, I think, and that's where you have to, you know, start off super, super small, and and realize that you know there's there's amazing achievement in completing your first five k walk, uh, and 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 sort of uh, and bolstering, you know, achievements as you as you go along, and making sure that the environment that 
you know, a, a person is in is supportive of that. So they're around other people that are going through that same journey too. There's no point in putting a, a, a regular civilian, as you would like to call it, in with someone that's a 50k runner and expect them to feel okay about it. Chances are they won't. But if you put them in a in a group of a uh, of, of, of other people that are all trying to do the same thing, then, you know, they're, they're going to bond over it. They're going to uh, achieve things, you know, and whatnot. So, um, yeah, so it's just it's just all dependent on how you pitch it. So let's let's, um, let's talk about the the, the main metaphor um, of, of the book, which is the, the three parts of the brain, the, the chimp, the professor and the computer. So um, how, what, what, what do you mean by these and how, how can we uh, use them to become braver athletes? Yeah, so, I mean, you know, we have to make some assumptions and, and, and simplifications here because, you know, the, 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 what we now know about the structure and function of the brain, it's far more complex than reducing it to, you know, three <laughs> caricatures, right? But, but, but the bottom line is that for, you know, athletes and humans who are trying to struggle with everyday thoughts and things that they don't want is that we need something that helps us. So something that's tangible. So, so wading through, you know, detailed neuroscientific uh, uh, journal articles is not really going to give you the answers to help you, you know, ask for a pay raise tomorrow or feel confident to enter a race that you've never done before or so on. And so what we, what we now think of, and then it's not, it's not just us that have done this. Many, many psychologists, sports psychologists and other uh, uh, authors have also um, made distinctions between uh, parts of our brain uh, that seem to have different roles. And, and again, we'd, um, one of the simplifications here from the science is that we kind of conflate the, the, the structure from the function part. We naturally know that, that, that certain tasks aren't exclusively located in certain areas of the brain. But if you can sort of um, let some of those uh, uh, um, sort of scientific, um, uh, uh, you know, you know consistency with the scientific research, if you can just let some of those things slide in the sense that it doesn't fight against the biological reality of what we know, but it isn't entirely consistent with it because we're looking for practical strategies. We know that, you know, the, the limbic system, the part of our brain that's the oldest, deep in the center that has places like the, that has in it things like the amygdala and hippocampus and all these other sort of Latin names that we might have heard of, that it's the center of our emotional world. That's where our emotions come from. That's where the fight or flight response comes from. That's where our pain and fear is often processed. And that part of our brain we know is a kind of reactive, impulsive, emotional machine. It doesn't actually think the way that you think of thinking. So, you know, when you think of all the things that you like doing and you figure out, you know, what house you want to live in and you're, how much you're getting paid and you're doing math in your head, and well, that's not the part of our brain that's doing that heavy lifting. The part that's, that's, that's trying to get you out of harm's way and to keep you alive is the limbic system. So, so we and others have called this a chimp because a chimp is a sort of a nice metaphor because it implies, you know, it's a kind of an immature primate that both can have tantrums it can uh, uh, convince us uh, just as a two-year-old having a tantrum in the middle of a grocery store can. Uh, we use all that we need to use all of our techniques to say that the world isn't ending as you know it. And how do we try and calm that part of ourselves down? But the part of us who makes rational decisions, uh, what we call the professor brain, the wrinkly part, the frontal cortex. Um, so those two brains are really the source of a lot of the fights that go on in our own head. So the voice of I don't feel good enough, I don't feel worthy enough, I'm 
and all the other things, I don't want to be embarrassed, or I'm just scared I'm going to get eaten by a shark. They're all coming from the limbic system, but our professor brain is saying, oh, it's just a race, just enjoy it. Of course, don't worry about it. And you're having this fight inside your own head, and we know which one often wins that, and it's the limbic system, the chimp, and it's been biologically sort of wired to win that fight, and it does it a number of ways, one of which it processes information from our senses about five times quicker than our frontal cortex or limbic system and our amygdala in particular is, is, is paying attention to all the sensory information, our ears and our eyes and our touch, and it's processing them so quickly and, and setting off a cascade of hormonal and, uh, and, and biochemical changes in our body that get us to react in a certain way. And then meanwhile, our, our, um, our professor brain, our rational thinking brain, is sort of now already um, behind the eight ball a bit. So you've already, you've, you're nervous, your, palm, your palms are sweating, you feel a bit nauseous, but you know it's just a race, but you feel overpowered by these physical reactions. So that reason is because your chimp brain has already been able to set off this cascade of reactions before your limbics, before your professor brains had something to do about it. And then the other thing is that it, when it does detect some stress or stressors, I should say, some threat cues, as psychologists say, is that it throws a chemical brick at your frontal cortex. So about 30 neurotransmitters are released that stop your rational thinking professor brain. Try to think your way out of a potentially life and death situation and that again that's for a good measure right we don't want to be able to try and fit we can't be relied on to sort of say well is that something that could actually kill me let me go and check it out no you need to be primed your body needs to be primed to run to hide or to fight uh, as quick as possible so so most of our mental anguish is because it ultimately reflects these two fights between our brain what emotionally instinctively viscerally we feel yet what we actually think intellectually we want to do or we ought to do. And then the computer brain is, is, is sort of a, a metaphor to suggest that much of our world is also lives on autopilots or habits. We, again, we'd be overwhelmed if we had to cognitively process every decision that we have to make in life, whether it's just walking downstairs, how to open a door or how to drive. We learn these things and then once they become habits, they can kind of get almost like um, uh, stored in a part of our brain that doesn't have to think too much about it, which is why we can hold a conversation and drive at the same time, just not on a, ha well, a hands-free kit, I should say. So, so our computer brain when we start to run and also draw, and, it's, and that's the quickest brain of all, in fact. So when you're in a stressful situation, uh, yes, these threat cues are being processed through from your, from your chimp brain, your limbic system. But then your, your computer brain also provides access to our memory banks and says, oh, yes, you've been in this situation before and it didn't end well. You don't do well when these people are there or when the weather's like this or when the waves come at you like this and so on. So now we have the emotions that are also getting fueled by memories. And so those two things then almost can, can team up and we become now our slow, uh, uh, lazy uh, professor brain is now so puny that it can't put up much of a fight. So one of the, the tricks to trying to turn that tide so that our professor brains can be in charge is to, start, is to, is to kind of intercept those habits and routines and, and try and almost replace them and also have good memories to say, well, actually, when, that does, when this happens or when I've been in that situation in the past, it isn't as catastrophic as I'm imagining or I'm, my, chimp and my computer brains are leading me to believe, to kind of dissect some of those thoughts with rational thinking. And that's often the, the hallmark of a lot of psychotherapy. For example, cognitive behavioral therapy is essentially that's what it's doing. It's trying to intercept 
sort of irrational, emotive uh, states with more rational, logical thinking and confronting that. And so that's really why we like this little triad of understanding the voices that you have. It's not the real you. The chimp brain, the limbic system isn't the real you. It's the your professor brain is the real you. So when it shows up and tries to convince you that you're going to be humiliated out there or you're going to look, re- everyone's going to be staring at how fat you are in your lycra. Those reactions are simply trying to protect you from harm, physical harm or psychological harm, and they come from the limbic system. So the, the, the goal there is to try and, that we've got this chimp, don't worry, this has happened, um, we know how to deal with it, we know that most of the things that you're worried about are not going to come true, and those that could come true, nothing really matters even if they do, the so what question. So we try and get athletes to think of this as a debate within their own heads so that, we, that they don't always get hijacked by their chimp brain under stressful situations. So see if I can understand this, that that one of the tricks we can use is to sort of preload the computer brain with desired thoughts and scenarios and action plans so that it, it, it even beats out the chimp in that we're in a certain situation? Well, yeah, in a, in a way, what we're trying to do, we're trying to replace it with other habits, right? So this is one of the reasons that we think about um, the role of suffering or the role of being brave, like you have these thoughts and feelings and you did it anyway. And look, the world still turns, you survived it. And so the more you do that, the more you're laying down habits and memories that are drawn up, that then get summoned up when you're in that situation again. So it's partly we have to force ourselves to be in situations that make us feel uncomfortable to learn firsthand that that life goes on and your world didn't end and you never got ridiculed or laughed at or humiliated. And then once you start to learn that that's the goal of those experiences, you then start to see how important it is to, to, to put yourselves in situations and look forward to situations that actually create those circumstances because that's how you actually become a brave athlete. That's how you become mentally tougher. That's how you become more enduring. That's how your chimp realizes that your world doesn't end when you're in those situations because otherwise if, if you let it win out and fear remains, you just retreat from moments that or situations that scare you. You live in a comfort zone and that's not how we develop. I, I, as humans. I, I love that because it's in my experience and the experience of almost everyone I've ever talked to, it's, you know, most of us know what to do most of the time and we don't do it because we're afraid of how it's going to make us feel. Right. The conversation <laughs> that we don't want to have or I'm going to put out this blog post because I think it's going to get me some attention and it's going to say something important. But we can you know, I can hide that file on my computer for years i can never have the conversation and it's not to protect the other person it's to protect me yes and and i think that it's you know and you know i can say this after writing a book about it that you can't even learn this stuff from a book you have to our message is change your relationship with failure redefine what failure is learn to see it as an opportunity as guidance it's a bit like and i often use the analogy of you know, some athletes are so terrified about putting themselves in these situations that they need to, to feel successful. They, it must go perfectly first time. And I like, and I use the analogy, if you turn on the shower and before you get in, you try and test the temperature. So you stick your hand in and you adjust the, the hot or the cold. So it's just about right. That's what these situations are. So unlike 
rather than seeing it as a failure that you didn't compete or you didn't get the time you wanted or you didn't you were in there and you didn't do as well as you wanted see it like you're just putting your hand in the shower so that you can dial in uh, the situation so you can dial in your training your preparation your mindset so that you can reach your potential and when you when you have a fundamental shift in how you see failure you start to, and we have a, a, a phrase for it, and again, you'll excuse our swearing here, it's called finding your fuck it moment. When, you know, you say, fuck it, what's the worst that could happen? So what? And, you, and when you can start to enter yourselves in those situations, and we all know people who just seem to be like that anyway, and we're so envious of them, but you can teach yourself to be like that by forcing yourself to fail a lot and not be so concerned about what that failure is telling you about you as a person and more about your actions and how you can prepare differently. Mm, that's beautiful. And, and I'm wondering, Leslie, how that plays out when there are real, quote, real stakes when, you know, so if I, if I enter a race and, you know, no one's expecting me to do anything and I, you know, come in 10 minutes slower than my goal, like, you know, who cares? But if you're, if you're, you know, race, if you're racing professionally and sponsorships are on the line and, you know, your career, can you, can you find fuck it moments with, within that? Or is it, yeah. is it harder? Definitely. Um, I think you have to focus on the process rather than the outcome. Um, so, you know, I, I have process goals uh, in any given race. Uh, so by that, I mean things like whether it's, athletic form, uh, whether it's cadence on the bike, whether it's a positive attitude, um, whether it's getting my nutrition right. You know, I, I come up with kind of a list of, say, 10 or 15 process goals that I want to achieve in a race. Um, and and it's, not, it's not about outcome um, because there's so many things that can go, that can go wrong. And, and, and there's no doubt that, hey, you have a bad race and you don't do what you want to do, that, that you're frustrated and disappointed. Um, but I think that you uh, have enough things in place to make you feel positive about uh, knowing why it went wrong and seeing that as an opportunity to grow and learn rather than, um, you know, sort of getting all bogged down by it. Yeah, and nothing really hinges on a single race, ever. I mean, you could take the most high-stakes environment that you're an Olympic qualifying slot and you must get this time or whatever, but... But when you look in the context of an athletic career or even a season, none of those things are actually completely defining if you don't meet them. And so, you know, this, again, comes back to when the cards are dealt the, the way they've been dealt on race morning or the morning of something that you're terrified of. And, and they are what they are. If you, can de if, if you can't change them on the, on the day, then you just have to deal with them. But the two things that are always in your control, always, is your effort and your attitude. And so what we try and do is have athletes only when they do their post-race autopsy. That's the standard that we're holding them to. So, you know, missing a podium slot because you got overtaken in the finishing shoot or someone that were faster people than you on the day, none of that is in your control. But what is in your control that you kind of threw the towel in mentally and you kind of didn't give everything that you could give. You didn't really squeeze that sponge out. So effort and attitude are the only two things that you can control. And when you go into races with that mindset, to have your best outcomes and that's the paradox right of all of this is that the way to get the best outcome the one that you secretly want and listen let's not pretend that outcomes not important they are of course they are but the paradox is that the way to get the outcome you want is to not focus on it's to focus on the things that get you the outcome and that's the process mm. oh, i love that um 
So uh, one of the things you talk about is the there are seven attributes of a mature athletic identity, and and I was I was um, reading my notes into uh, Google Keep, which was uh, transcribing them for me. And when I when I read mm-hmm. this one, it it, it uh, changed a mature into amateur athletic identity, which I thought was really <laughs> interesting. But what can you talk about? Um, either you know some of those things. Like, what do you mean by mature athletic identity, and how do how do I know if I have one? Yeah. So you know, and this is now in the realm of the psychology of identity and what it is, the thoughts and beliefs that we have about who we are and the roles that we play, and. And we know that our identities feed into what psychologists call our self-concept, right? How some, some global statements about the kind of person we are. And then all the identities, the hats that we wear in life as a partner, as an employee, or a business owner, as a parent, as an athlete, they all feed into that self-concept. So all of these things about our athletic identity are equally true for all the other identities that we have as well. And when you have multiple identities, meaning not in a dissociative personality disorder way, but when you have multiple identities, meaning there are, you, you wear a lot of hats in your life, that's, that we know that that's an important and healthy contributor to self-concept. So think of it like an investment portfolio. If all of your stocks are in one uh, shares or in one particular stock, if that goes, you're kind of up shit creek, right? And it's the same. If you become only an athlete and to the extent that all other aspects of your life, you, you, you withdraw from relationships, you're no longer, you know, you have a few friends. This goes for, you could substitute workaholic for this anywhere. Then we know that where, if you have a career-ending injury or an illness that stops you doing that, then you better be, be prepared for some dark times ahead because your self-concept that is the main pipeline, uh, sorry, your identity that's the main pipeline to your concept is now starting to chip away at how you feel about your worth as a person. So what we try and do is have encourage athletes to have multiple things that they're interested in. We, with that, you know, you can make the case for why we are, you know, uh, absolutely opposed to having high levels of specialization for kids in sport. Leslie's the same as a professional athlete. She's always had a lot of th- other things going on and enjoyed other things. And some coaches, back to the how we started this discussion, you need to take this more seriously. You need to give up these other things and not realizing that that's how her, her identity survives the ups and downs of the injuries and the illnesses that come with it. So once you get down into the individual identity level and you start, like you said, you start to, to think about what it takes. So one of the things is about, you know, um, are you, um, you know, we call it mature rather than a strong athletic identity. And we don't say strong because some people who have, uh, of, of, you know, lost other, other identities at the expense of their athleticism. They might say, your athletic identity, that's all you live and breathe this now. You could say, well, that's very strong. It's so powerful. But that actually isn't healthy. So we prefer the word mature, which is more of a well-balanced approach or a well-balanced sort of uh, spread across the hats that you wear. So, for example, we want uh, people to uh, feel comfortable being able to talk about their athleticism, owning their athleticism. So if you're you know, doing your first 5K and you're speaking to someone who is an accomplished athlete or just been doing it a long time and you have a tendency to sort of excuse how slow you are because, oh, of course, they wouldn't 
this. It's not as fast as them, and not, I'm just a so-and-so. That's not taking ownership of where you're at in the sport. So a sign of a mature athletic identity is to take ownership of wherever you are, however fast or slow you are, and not make excuses for that. It's a product of how much time you put in, uh, how important it is to you, and so on. So that's just one example of how we try and build those conversations with athletes. And, and trying to, to stop them using the justers. I'm just a this or I'm just a that. Or uh, I, we, uh, we, We're coaches, right? And the number of athletes that we have saying, do you coach people as slow as me? Do you only coach fast people? That, tell, that speaks volumes about how they see their own athletic identity. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and it's, uh, it's, it's, I think you talk about the chimp doesn't want to be embarrassed, humiliated. And, you know, it's, it's a kind of preemptive strike. Right. That if I tell you how how badly I suck, then you've got nothing. Exactly. And you remember, your chimp is only is actually trying to protect you. So you might think that your chimp is just being, you know, is, is, is sabotaging everything that you want to do in life. But your chimp is trying to get you away from situations that a, are going to kill you. So that's a noble cause. But the other things is that it doesn't want you to feel that the, the sort of the holy trinity of, of, of the psychological death the equivalent is embarrassment, humiliation and inadequacy. Because years ago, millions of years ago, being in environments where that happened did actually mean death because you were isolated from your troop. You had to forage food for yourself. You had to defend yourself. But nowadays, those things are just these little artifacts that don't actually matter that much if we look like a complete idiot in front of other people, right? The world still turns and that goes on. So your chimp, when you have these feelings, your chimp is trying to get you to convince you, oh, you don't do something you're good at. Why are you doing this? Or don't worry, you know, there'll be another day. Do it later. You don't have to do this now. It's trying to persuade you to not put yourself in situations where that that potential risk of humiliation and balance inadequacy, it happens. And that's what we've got to really confront. Right. So there's, there's so much to talk about, but, you know, uh, I've taken a lot of your time. I just, I would love for you to share a little bit about um, what I think is my favorite feature in the book, which are the meme turds. These (laughs) these things that I, that we see on Facebook and Instagram that are supposed to be sort of wise and encouraging and you say are, you know, scientifically not valid or gross oversimplifications or misunderstood. Can you talk about um, a few of those? Yeah, yeah. I mean, this whole, you know, I don't know if you're familiar with Motivational Monday. There's even days now assigned to that. You know, you get on the Monday, you get the little meme that comes around with some, you know, sort of uh, uh, words of inspiration, vacuous and sufficiently vague to sound sort of deeply philosophical and and, and often some of them, let's take, you know, confidence is a, is, a, is, a, is a great one to begin with. And there's so many memes that kind of convince you that, you know, what's stopping you become the person that you really want to be is to, you know, don't compare yourself to others. If you just think it hard enough, you can become that person, dream it and it will be and that kind of stuff. And, and we know that that's nonsense. I mean, the psychological science has spoken on so many of those issues about how you find confidence how you build resilience, uh, how you compare and judge yourself to others. It's perfectly normal, for example, to want to know how you're doing relative to others. So to expect people to just say, never compare yourself to others, 
it's just not only fighting the biological reality of it, it's extremely nice. We've never met anyone that's able to do that. And even if you try to do it long enough, eventually you'll give in. You can't help because that helps us figure out where we sit in that, in that pecking order. That's a biological drive to survive. Well, so it's knowing how to fill. Yeah. So yeah. Also, if, you're, if you're entering a race, you know, I'm suddenly thinking about that, that video that made everybody cry, including me, a few years ago. I think it was a Special Olympics where, where it was a 100-meter dash and somebody fell and all the participants came back and they just sort of held hands and walked across the finish line. And there is something sort of beautiful and noble about that, but it doesn't invalidate the fact that I enter a race to compare myself to other people. And as I'm, as I'm approaching the last two or three miles, everybody in front of me has an X on their back. And I'm like, I'm going to pass you fucker. Like, <laughs> Yeah, and, and it's funny because using that example is a great one because we have a lot of athletes who have what we call a participant mindset versus a competitor mindset. And they enter races, oh, I'm just doing it for fun, which is, we're not arguing with that. Um, I don't really care how I do, and, and I'm just going to go do it. And, and some of them, uh, the very few of them actually genuinely think that deep down. But most of them, in our experience, do that because it's a way – it gives them a way out if things don't go well. Oh, I'm just doing it for fun. It's not that important anyway. And we know that, that you know, humans are competitive by nature. Uh, we've, our brains are wired to compare how we're doing uh, relative to other people and, and take any task. And there'll be a fight. We'll, our brains will find a way to sort of make a competition out of it. So to fight that is also kind of to, to kind of miss the point. Now, we don't, we, you know, far be it from us, because we love a good emotional, teary video as best of other, uh, you know, like the, the rest of us. But it's, that's not what we're saying. We're saying, you know, see them for what they are. And they're like the, you know, think of them like they're sort of getting into a warm bath. It feels great. You can whip up this emotional chimp reaction but it soon goes cold and it doesn't have any long lasting impact on how you deal with situations in the future. They might be great for what we call cognitive priming. You know, it gets you into a mindset or a readiness to do something. But in terms of a long lasting skill uh, to build confidence, to build athletic identity, uh, uh, you know, could rattle off a whole host of those, they don't actually do anything. So just to recognize that that's what they are. Right. And, 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 some, and some of them are just are just plain harmful right uh yeah well particularly when it comes to um you know ones that are built around social comparison um and you know there's a, you know we could talk about there are some that are related to body shape um some that are related to you know identity some are related to confidence some of them aren't aren't just um uh, it might be a stretch to say they're harmful but they're not productive uh, put it that way. So I, I think that it's, it's starting, listen, it takes hard work to have a fundamental shift in how we think and feel about ourselves. It isn't going to come from a, from a, from a, you know, a 15, uh, you know, a 20 second, um, Under Armour commercial on YouTube. Uh, but there are some things in there that make us feel good and we like them. It might spur something in us to, to try something, but it don't rely on it to have a fundamental shift in how you think and feel on a daily basis. Right. And, and a lot of them, you know, they're, when I read some of them, like, I'm like, yeah, I believe that. And of course, if it doesn't get operationalized, then, then yeah, yeah. Then you're, you're living in your warm bath. Like, like the set a goal. So go, yeah, set a goal yeah. so it doesn't, big. It doesn't, it doesn't give you anything that you can actually use, right. To get better. It just tells you what you, 
you know, it's kind of like a little bit, it's like a photograph, right? Okay, I can see what's going on. Yes, I can appreciate it. It doesn't tell me anything about how to actually take the picture or how to get better as a photographer. Um, and so that's what we think. That's where some of these strategies are trying to do. They're trying to kind of unlock some of the thinking behind what what is holding you back or stopping you do things that scare you and how that you can start to approach those with a little bit more than just relying on, you know, the Internet. Right. I'm, I'm reminded of uh, one of my favorite authors is uh, Terry Pratchett, um, who, yeah. who one of his books said, if you trust in yourself and believe in your dreams and follow your, your star, you'll still get beaten by people who spent their time working hard and learning things and weren't so lazy. <laughs> I know, I know, right? <laughs> Yeah, I know. It's, it's a, it could be it could be a dream crush. You know, there's a whole, you know, we could talk about the self the failed self esteem movement and from the 60s and 70s and how it's led to you know parenting now and how there's a participation culture and effort is the only thing that matters culture and and how ultimately we're doing a gross disservice to the children that we're nurturing uh, in doing that rather than letting them fail and letting them be exposed to competition and and so on. So that's a whole other thing. But that gets exactly at those issues. <laughs> So um, before I let you go, uh, who, who do you work with? Who, who, who's listening to this would, would want to work with you? I know you have a, a product that I, I almost signed up for today, but my back was hurting too much, the, the, the six minutes six-pack. Um, yeah, that's, yeah right. that's right. That's our uh, endurance uh, a, a video that uh, we did for a core routine for endurance athletes. It was pretty fun. We recorded it all together I, I put Simon through you know through pain and torture to get that video but uh, yeah you could say, certainly sign up for that but in terms of the people that we work with it, it really runs the gamut to be honest as long as you have passion for for change and for sport then you know then we're up for coaching you it might be for your first 5k or it might be as a professional Ironman athlete and um, so you know we work with with, with everyone to be honest. Uh -huh. So, so, so for clearly someone who's sensed that their head has gotten in their way and they haven't achieved their potential at some professional or semi-pro level, but, but someone who understands that, that, that this, this athletic pursuit is a metaphor for everything else that they want to achieve and want to become in their life. Right. Cause I, I kept reading the book yeah, thinking like, the, like I want to give this to people who have no athletic interest because it's right. it's like a, it's a it's a field guide for human development and that, and that's actually the little you know shh, don't tell anybody that this is a stealth <laughs> approach right because these are life skills let's face it <laughs> coping with thoughts and things you don't want doing stuff that scares you uh, stepping out of your comfort zone they you know we just happen to be discussing them about in a sports environment but they work in multiple environments and i'd say that probably like 5% of the people we work with are the top elite professionals who are trying to get their mental edge. It's the majority of people are folks who are just struggling, juggling, plate spinning with life, trying to pursue sport and get the most out of it without actually it may giving themselves undue anxiety, stress or panic attacks along the way. And so that we can start to get into situations a little bit more where we can find those fuck it moments for everybody. Cause they're, great when they happen and they feel so amazing, but you have to learn how to do them. <laughs> I love that. Um, and, and where on the web can folks find you? Yes, yeah, so you can go to our website, braveheartcoach.com. You can actually do, uh, you can fill out our smog test, which is a little uh, questionnaire, uh, answer questions, and I'll give you a phone call, no strings attached, and chat through your training and uh, 
talk about certainly what coaching we offer, but uh, you know, just have a have a chat with you. So yeah, we'd love to hear from you. Awesome. Well, yeah, and go the, ahead, Sam. And the book and the audio book you can get on Amazon and Audible and stuff as well. Right. And the book is called The Brave Athlete, Calm the Something Down and Rise to the Occasion. And Simon and Leslie, it was such a joy to to read this book, to feel like I got an infusion of your your spirit and humor through the words and now uh, increasing the bandwidth and getting to, to talk to you guys. It's a, it's a huge honor and a, and a pleasure. Thanks. Thanks, Thank Howard, so much. much. All right. Take care, you guys. All right. What'd you think of that? When you're listening to it now, knowing that in hindsight, Leslie's going to become a award-winning screenwriter, uh, did you get anything new from it? I know I did. So um, let's talk about running news, movement news. It's been a sad little week in Lake Wobegon. My back went out on Monday a week ago. Today's Wednesday, so it's been nine days. And I'm only now starting to feel better. So I'm worried about the kind of uh, cardio shape I'm going to be in for one month from now, the tournament in New Orleans. And I don't exactly know how to thread the needle in terms of really when I get better, um, getting my cardio back before just, uh, you know, burning out before the tournament. So I'm going to have to play that by ear and maybe accept the fact that I won't be as energetic and have as much stamina as I would like to have and as I think of myself as having. In uh, garden news, not much going on. It's been, you know, crazy warm here last last week and it rained a couple times. So So the weeds are doing very well. Um, and we're getting ready to think about what we're going to be planting. All right, time for thanks. Thanks to Will Ridenauer for allowing me to use his beautiful song, Sabali Don, The Dance of Peace. You can find more of Will's music at his website, willridenauer.com. And of course, thanks to all of you Plant Yourself podcast patrons. Kim Harrison, Lynn McClellan, Brittany Porter, Dominic Maurer, Barbara Whitney, Tammy Black, Amy Good, Amanda Hatherley, Mary Jane Wheeler, Ellen Kennelly, Melissa Cobb, Rachel Behrens, Tina Scharf, Tina Ahern, Jen Filkonofsky, David Bizek, The Mysterious, Michelle X, Elspeth Feldman, Leah Stoller, Alan Christensen, Colleen Peck, Michelle Landry, Josina, Sarah Durkis, Kelly Cameron, Janet Selby, Claire Adams, Tom Franzet, Jeanette Benham, Gila Sert, David Donahue, Blair Cyber, Dorona Vizov, Gio and Carolyn Argentati, Jody Friesner, Misha Rosen, Michael Warbeck, Aviva Lael, Alicia Lemus, Val Lineman, Nick Harper, Bandana Chawley, Molly Levine, The Inscrutable, Harry R., Susan Laverty, The Panda Vegan, Craig Kovic, Adam Scharf, Karen Burry, Heather Morgan, Nigel Davies, Marion Blum, Teresa Copel, Julian Watkins, Breed O'Connell, Sharon Hirschman, Linda Ayad, Holm Hedegaard, Isa Tuzinwa, Connie Hainline, Aaron Greer, Alicia Davis, Heather O'Connor, Carolyn Jensen, Sherry Olikoski of Plant Power for Health, Karen Smith, Scott Morani, Karen and Joe Crabtree, Kirby Burton, Teresa Carell, Kevin McCauley, Elizabeth Rothschild, Ann Jesse, Cheryl Dwyer, Jenny Hazelton, Peter W. Evans, Dennis Bird, Darby Kelly, Lori Fanny, Linnea Lundquist, Emily Iaconelli, Levy Wallach, Rosamund McAtee, Dan Picorni, Stephen Leenan, Patty D. Martino, Mike and Donna Kartz, Deanne Bishop, Billbury Elf, Marjorie Lewis, Trisha Adams, Nancy Sheldon, Lindsay Bayshore, Gunmarit Hagen, Tracy Gulledge, Laura Heaton, Meg from Mama Says, Stacey Stokes, Ben Savage, Michael Kay, David Hughes, Connie Rogers, Claire England, Sally Robertson, Paranganchi. Amy Daly, Brian Tourville, Mark Jeffrey Johnson, Josie Dempsey, Karen Schmidt, Pamela Hayden, Emily Perryman, Allison Corbett, Richard Stone, Lauren Vaught of Edible Musings, Aaron Hasty, Sean Owen, Sagar Nayak, Erica Piedra, Danielle Roberts, Michael Lushton, Sarah Johnson, Catherine Floyd, for your generous support of the podcast. That's it for now. As always, be well, my friends.